All right, enough. You guys ready to go? <clears throat> All right. I had an I had quite a thing happen to me this week. Uh, after Thanksgiving, I thought, you know, I need to go for a walk. All right. Anybody ever have those thoughts? Mostly, I ignore them, but I have the thoughts. You know what I mean? So I went for a walk, and I'm about a half mile from getting home, and this guy opens the door and he throws a clarinet at me. I'm just walking on down the road. I go a little bit further. A bass drum comes rolling out of a garage right in front of me. A little bit further, a guy throws a trumpet at me. Like, holy cow. I finally get home to my wife. I'm like, you can't believe this. Guy threw a clarinet at me. There's a bass drum. The guy threw a trumpet at me. My wife looked at me and she said, I would say that that was all very well orchestrated. She was here last night. She said, I said, what? <laughs> All right. So during the, <clears throat> during the month of December, we're going to look at some of the great prophecies. Actually, we're going to look at five of the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled those five when we get to Luke chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2 on Christmas Eve and we talk about the, the virgin birth and, and Jesus coming as flesh and dying for our sins. But those were all prophesied a thousand years, uh, 700 years. But the prophecy we're going to look at today is 6,000 years old. And here's the statement that I want to stick with you. All right, Get this down then if you need to nap. Okay, Here's the statement. When man was at his worst, God was at his best. And that's what Genesis 3.15 is all about. Genesis 3.15 is arguably the most difficult and complex verse in your entire Bible. But the old saints knew what it meant, and we're going to do our best today to sort that out. Okay? But here is the truth of what we're going to talk about. The truth is, if you are in Christ... If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're following him, you have already won. You got that? You're not trying to earn salvation. You're not trying to be good enough. Maybe if I buy enough food for these kids in Haiti. No. If you buy, if you buy food for those kids in Haiti, that's because you are saved and you want to act like a Christian. It's not so that you can earn any points with God because Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. So all my good stuff is bad. What's my bad stuff? Okay. However, when Jesus went to the cross and died, the battle was over. So when you accepted Jesus, you win. You don't have to sit here today. I spent half my life convincing Christians that they're saved. If you've accepted Jesus, you've already won. You just got to stay in the race. Now that's a whole lot different than, well, I guess I got to go to church because I need points. <laughs> well, you're not going to get enough points. It just doesn't work that way. And aren't you glad that God's grace covers our sin? How many of you are University of Florida fans? Come on, have courage. All right. Florida State. I, <laughs> I picked that only because of this last week. Now, <clears throat> if you are a Florida fan, you will never watch that game again. 
Am I telling the truth? If you are a Florida State fan, you have watched those highlights over and over and over again. And before next year's Florida, Florida State, you'll be playing those clips before the game. You see, in 1982, I was at Game 7 of the World Series. I was there when Bruce Souter struck out Gorman Thomas to win the 1982 World Series. I've watched that game more times than I can tell you. You know why I watch it? Because I know we win every time. And as Christians, you and I need to have that confidence. And that's what Genesis 3 is all about. 6,000 years ago, when Adam and Eve were at their worst, God was at his best. When you and I were at our worst, Jesus was at his best. Stand with me out of respect for God's word. So here's the deal. 6,000 years ago, God creates Adam and Eve creates Adam out of dust, creates uh, Eve out of the out of his rib, and uh, and puts them in a garden. And he says, "Now look, the only thing you can't do just don't eat from this one tree." Now the simple thing to do would be to move several thousand miles away from that tree, but they didn't do it. All right, the garden is huge. The garden may have gone as far as from Egypt to India. It was huge, but they stayed close to the tree. One day the serpent comes. We'll get to him in a minute. The serpent speaks to Eve. He always lies. You need to know this. He always lies. And the serpent said, Eve, didn't God say don't touch that fruit? What did God say? He said don't eat the fruit. Satan always gives you just a little bit of truth and it's always a lie. And... Before it's all over, Eve takes the fruit, she eats it, gives it to Adam, Adam eats it, and then everything goes south. God shows up, and here's the conversation. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, strife, hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now, hold on, hold on. So here they use the word offspring and here it just says woman. But both cases, the word should be seed. If you're using the King James Version, you probably see that. All right. I will put hatred between the woman's seed and your seed. Okay. He, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, you can be seated. All right. So this is a classical picture of transference that has been used every day for 6,000 years amongst humanity. God shows up in the garden and God says to Adam, Adam... Did you eat from the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat from? And Adam says, that girl Eve that you put here. God turns to Eve and says, Eve, did you eat of the fruit I told Adam not to eat of? She said, that snake that you put here. Who did they both blame it on? God. It was God's fault. As a parent, you ever been in that spot? You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You did this, you did this, you did this, and somehow it's my fault? 
Alright? See, this idea of transference has been going on from the beginning. But I want you to notice that nobody gets off unpunished here. The serpent, he's going to crawl on his belly for all eternity. We'll get to him. Just give me a second. Adam and Eve are going to get tossed out of the garden. And he says, from now on, you read on. From now on, you will earn your living by the sweat of your brow. Everything's been perfect. Now you're going to work hard and there's going to be thorns and thistles. And he says to Eve, and Eve, because of what you've done, going to multiply your pain in childbearing. Okay, so everybody lost real quickly. Wouldn't you agree with that? But let's talk about the serpent first. All right. Now, evolutionists like to have fun with us, and that's okay. I like to have fun with them. So I'm crazy because I believe that a snake walked upright and talked. If evolution is true, they believe that a given enough time, the snake will grow legs, stand up, and learn how to talk. Think about that. Now, what do you see in the world? Do you see the world getting better or worse? Well, of course. Of course. If you leave your house and you don't clean it for six months, if the law of evolution was true, the house should clean itself. When you go back in six months, will it be cleaner or dirtier? That's called, that's the second law of thermodynamics that says that everything left to itself will eventually wind down. Things don't wind themselves up, they wind down. Okay, having said that, the serpent was able to talk and it doesn't seem to follow Eve. Perhaps before sin, all the animals talked. I don't know whether they did or not. I'm just telling you that it didn't seem to bother Eve that the serpent talked. Now, whether that was just the serpent, whether it was because Satan was infilling the serpent, but the serpent's punishment is that he will crawl on the dirt for the rest of his life, and God said, I will put a hatred between all snakes and all mankind. Now, there's a few of you warped people in this room <laughs> that like serpents. I had a friend in Jacksonville and they had, they would send me pictures. They had snakes that hung from the chandelier in their dining room. And they would invite us to dinner. And my wife would say, no way, no how, never, never will I go to that house. And that was just normal for them. But that's not most of us. Mankind has a fear of snakes. Always had has a fear of snakes. And for pretty good reason, a lot of them are very deadly. People say to me, oh, that's a good snake. Never met one. <laughs> if he was a good snake, he would not have come into my yard. Because I have a four iron and I have a 33 inch baseball bat. Neither one can a snake hold up very well against. There are no such thing as good serpents. God said, I will put hatred between your seed and the woman's seed. So the serpent pays a high price. Now in John 8, 4, Jesus tells us all about Satan. What he, what we, what he tells us is that Satan has always been a what? A liar. Satan comes to lie, steal, cheat, and destroy. But he always starts with just enough truth. Every false teacher I know in Christianity quotes scripture. Every one of them. And if you don't know the truth, if you don't listen to that and go, 
that doesn't sound right. Something seems amiss here. This is not what normal Christianity teaches. I better go back and take a look at this. You need to know that Satan always uses scripture. When Jesus was being tempted after he was baptized, what did Satan use every, every time? Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Scripture. He'd say, hey, didn't God say? And Jesus would say, yeah. Now here's the rest of the verse. And Jesus would correct Satan because he's a liar. And he always comes in and he has but one goal. See, he's already lost. His fate is sealed. And the last thing he wants is for you and me to get our fate sealed in Christ. So Satan is trying to tear Adam and Eve down from the very beginning so that salvation can never possibly occur. And then we get to the sin itself. Now, this is Adam and Eve. Again, here's the tree. Let's just put the tree right here in the middle of our worship center. Adam, why don't you move to Port Orange? At least you're not tempted every moment of your life to look at that tree. But they didn't. They stayed close enough. And they studied the leaves and they studied the fruit. And then Satan says, you know, the deal is God, God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. What will you know? Oh, you'll know good and evil. Didn't they already know good? Everything God had created, the end of every day, God says, and it is. In fact, he finishes, he says, it's very good. So the only thing they didn't know was evil. So when they get to bite of the fruit, what do they now know? Now they know evil. And you and I have been paying the price ever since. Now, I've never blamed Adam. The scripture is very clear that, that what's that? That I, I've never blamed Adam. Is that what I said? I don't blame Adam. Adam, in the scripture, when you read in the New Testament, um, it says that all of us are guilty because of him. Do you think you'd have done any better? Do you think you and I would have done any better? No. Because we fall into the same category. But in Romans 5, it says God would send a second Adam. The second Adam. How was the first Adam born? It was a virgin birth, wasn't it? It was, Adam was made out of dust. Yes? All right, we can argue whether he had a belly button some other time, but he was created out of dust. So when Paul says in Romans 5, guys, when the second Adam comes, oh, the second Adam will right everything that the first Adam wronged. So there's your picture of this virgin birth on the way. But sin by itself, the word sin just means missing the mark. So everybody can go to heaven if you're perfect. If you are sinless, how many are ready? Now, it can't be now, it can't be this week or today. It has to be your whole life. Anybody here qualified? Well, not even remotely close. So you think by buying a few cans of green beans for somebody and helping somebody on Thanksgiving that that's going to qualify you for heaven? 
Now again, I do those things because I love Jesus and because Jesus has already locked my salvation in. But that's not going to save. That's not going to make up for all the evil that I've done and that you have done. Adam and Eve broke God's heart. He said one thing. I give you the world. Just don't eat of that tree. Hey, Adam, let's go eat of that tree. Man. If I didn't know that story so well, because that's me, isn't it? Isn't that you? The very thing that we're told not to do, that's the thing that we want to gravitate to. I don't care what sin we're talking about. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Romans 6 says it's by grace that we're saved for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So sin separates us from God. How are we going to get back to God? So on Adam and Eve's worst day, they've got sin. They know they're naked. They put fig leaves on. And God realizes that they have blown it. But God has a plan. Because on man's worst day, God's about to show you his best work. You know, sin, sin is never hard to find. There was a, a story about a, a guy named Izzy Einstein. Here's his picture. Um, during Prohibition, he went around and his job was to break up stills and, and gangs and whatever. <clears throat> and he had a running bet that he'd go to any town in America and within 30 minutes he could get find alcohol. He went to Atlanta, it took him 22 minutes. Went to Pittsburgh, took him 11 minutes. Went to Chicago, took him five minutes. Then he went to New Orleans. He asked a cab driver, he said, you know where I can get something to drink? The cab driver handed him a glass. Sin's never hard to find. Sin is everywhere. Sexual sin, greed, lust, power, uh, what, whatever your particular, ver- probably all of those. I mean, honestly, that's kind of the wrap up, isn't it? Lust, greed, money, power. That's, that's pretty much all sin comes into one, one of those forms. And all of those separate us from God. Now, how am I going to get back to God? 50% of American pastors, this came out last month, 50% of American pastors said the only way you can get to heaven is by being good. Okay. How can you be good? Plus, they, most of them don't believe in the Bible, so they can't even define morality. That's a real, that's a real problem. So, what is good? Maybe being nice to the climate? I mean, what, and, and they're serious. You can't be good. You're not going to be good enough for God. How do I get to heaven? By accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So pay attention here. 6,000 years ago, here's what the scripture says. On Adam and Eve's worst day, which translates into your worst day and my worst day. Because we were meant to live forever with God. Because they ate from the fruit, thrown out of the garden, we're all going to hell. Thanks, Adam and Eve. Wow. But God was at his best. And here's what he says to the serpent. He says, your offspring, 
and the offspring of the woman, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are going to hate each other. He will strike your head and you will wound his heel. Very interesting. Allow me to break this down for you. All right. I know this is 21st century. I know it's America. So I'm going to go real slow. Okay. Woman between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Do you see a problem there? The woman does not have a seed. Yes. The female has an egg. Well done. And the male has the seed. So it says right here that this is going to be a virgin birth that is going to restore mankind. He says, Satan, between your seed and the woman's seed. The woman doesn't have a seed. And he, you see the seed turn into a he? All right, for those people that think God is non-binary. It says, he will crush Satan's head and Satan will wound his heel. I think even the order of that is important. That while you and I look at all that Satan is doing to us, the pain that we have to deal with, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the struggles in our marriages, the struggle with sin, all the stuff that Satan throws at us from day to day, and God says, here's the deal. Here's how the story ends. God is going to crush Satan's head. The head represents the brains, the head of the operation, the president, the, the emir, the top, whatever. But in the process, what's going to happen to us? We're going to get wounded in the heel. Well, that's not such a bad deal, is it? If I get a wound in the heel, but I crush his head, don't I win? So on the worst possible day... When Adam and Eve have sinned and they know they're going to get thrown out of the Garden of Eden, God steps in. Now listen, we live in such a perverted world. If you have children in here, would you cover their ears just for a second? I'm going to tell this story as quick as I can. I don't know if you saw the story out of England last Sunday. Last Sunday, they brought in this guy, Ph.D., who got his Ph.D. under the authority of the head of the Anglican Church. And his sermon was that Jesus was a transsexual. You can look it up. And this is what it's based on, okay? Based on the fact that he looked at a couple of Renaissance paintings and Jesus had a sword stuck in his side. And so, obviously, between the fact that this could look like a female body part and we never saw a naked picture of Jesus then it obviously meant that they were trying to convey to us that Jesus was a transsexual. Now this is the garbage that, okay, this is the Church of England, all right, just to give you perspective. And it said people left the church crying. Well, there was one thing, right? They should have just left. They should have just left the church. That's the crazy world that we live in. They've got to go after Jesus. But what... We're told 6,000 years ago is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to crush Satan's head. Isaiah 7, 14 says the virgin will be with child and that baby will grow up 
And in Isaiah 9 says he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And he will be reigning over the nations forever and ever and ever because he's crushed the head of Satan. Colossians 2.15, check this one out. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. He crushed Satan. How about Romans 16, 20? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. The promise 6,000 years ago when Adam and Eve were at their worst is when God was at his best. When you and I are at our worst... God's at his best. You're saying, but you don't know all the stuff I've done and all the perverted things I've said and done and acted on and the greed. And and when you're at your worst, and if that's right now, you're online, you're here, you're in the land. If you're at your worst right now, Jesus' blood is still at its best. That's the message for Adam and Eve. It's a message for us because the battle has already been won. It was one the moment Jesus said, it is finished. Finished. Done. Now, all you and I got to do is stay in the race. So if you haven't accepted Jesus yet, there's a button. I've decided. You hit that button. People will talk to you. You come down front here. People will be here to help you accept Jesus. But I cannot stand it when Christians are like, well, I hope I make it in. Well, if you hope you make it in... You don't understand salvation because it's by grace through faith and us committing to Jesus and following to Jesus. And to know that once you've done that, that even on your worst day, Jesus is having his best day. And I want to finish with this statement. All right. We're going to we're going to just say a couple things. All right. There it is. Nothing in this world is worth going to hell for. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. No affairs worth going to hell for. No sexual encounters worth going to hell for. No amount of money is worth going to hell for. No amount of power is worth going to hell for. No amount of lying is worth going to hell for. Anybody going to agree with me? There's nothing in this world. Now, just leave it up there just for a minute, if you would, Jess. My mother-in-law is 93 years old. She's an English teacher. I've been in the family 40 years, and she's been correcting me for 40 years. (laughs) She'd say, Joe, you can't end a statement with a preposition. I'd say, well, Mom, in this case, I had to. So there it is. Nothing on earth is worth going to hell for. And I left it that way so you can fill it in. Nothing is worth going to hell for. Not this, not that, not this, not that. You fill in the blank, whatever that might look like. But if you don't go away with anything else, know this, that on your worst day, God was at his best. So, Father, we claim this promise from 6,000 years ago. We're blown away. I don't know why we're surprised that you would have a plan. Of course you had a plan. You knew that Adam and Eve would sin and... You knew that you would step into time and that you would buy us back. And what a 
what a reunion that's going to be when we get to heaven. But Lord, there are people here today still trying to earn it, trying to be good enough, trying to earn the points. I pray that today they would just surrender. There's people watching online. Had a really bad night last night. I pray that they'll understand that last night when they were at their worst, the cross was still at its best. And once we're in Christ, we've already won. So we can watch the game all we want. We'll watch it play out. But the victory is already ours. So Holy Spirit, you teach each of us what you want us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen.